Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. America's banking crisis continues as the Federal Reserve prepares another rate rise to curb inflation and wage growth, again raising recessionary fears. Boeing, Bombardier, L3 Harris, MTU, Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, Safran, and others reported first quarter 2023 earnings as the Pentagon issues massive contracts for weapons and F-35 purchases. The EU overrules Eastern European farmers on Ukraine grain imports, an issue that was straining the pro-Kiev alliance. Demonstrations loom in France as Britain prepares to crown a new king. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, uh, what is unfortunately a very rainy Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a Sunday without it. Yeah, thanks very much indeed, Vago, as always. Yeah, good to be on and happy rainy Sunday. Uh, indeed, it wouldn't be Sunday unless all of us uh, were uh, together. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Ron, uh, obviously, uh, a lot, you know, every week we have this sort of uh, sentiment uh, drill. Uh, the First Republic drama is uh, playing out uh, as we. Uh, report this, the, fret, uh, the Fed is expected uh, to continue short-term uh, rate rises uh, to curb uh, wage, uh, you know, elevated wages, as they put it, but also uh, inflationary pressures. Uh, the group also reported uh, earnings. Uh, sort of walk us through the broader uh, dynamics that we're seeing on the Hill and how defense and aerospace traded uh, in, uh, in relation to how the broader market was moving. The broader market this week, actually, given all the, the news of you know what was going on with First Republic and so on and so forth, um, the S&P was up um, 87 basis points, so just under a percent. Uh, and then, you know, this week we had, as you as you said, like a whole multitude of raining you know, earnings reports all week long. Um, and, and in the week, commercial aerospace did better than defense. Uh, you know, the defense names broadly uh, were down, uh, call it anywhere from one and a half to maybe four uh, percent. Uh, you can kind of pick a handful out. You know, Lockheed was down you know, almost four percent. General Dynamics was down about three percent. L3 Harris was down three and a half percent. Northrop uh, was down about two percent. Uh, and then on the commercial side, uh, you know, Boeing was up less than a percent. Um, uh, call it you know eighty basis points. And the real champion uh, of the week, who did report this week, was Hexel. Hexel was up almost six percent. Uh, and that was really a strong earnings report and, and uh, kind of across the board. And uh, they, they did quite well. And, and the one that was really the worst of the week, and I, I think we'll talk about this later, was Bombardier. They, was down, they were down almost 16% on the week. Right. Uh, and we can talk about some of the dynamics driving that. Uh, when you look at the other things we, we follow, uh, the 10-year yield has kind of been in that 3.5% range. And we're still there. It's about 3.4%. Uh, 3. Uh, WTI has been hanging out where it's been. Uh, that's at 70, about $76, $77 a barrel. Brent's about $80 a barrel. You know, the VIX index is about where it was last week, uh, in the mid teens, uh, almost 16. Uh, and then, you know, the, you know, the market's kind of getting ready for this upcoming week where we've got the lessors reporting some of the defense services companies reporting, 
Spirit Aero Systems will report this week. So I think that'll be an interesting one, right. given everything that's been going on with the 737. Uh, and, you know, I think the market's, you know, taken, taken a lot in stride. I, I think what you're what you're seeing with the defense names isn't so much the, the earnings report, but it was, we're finally starting to, I think the market's starting to recognize, hmm, this thing on the hill with the debt limit that could get tricky with the budget. You know, I got a couple of questions from some investors this week saying, hey, well, what if they really do make cuts and those cuts impact defense? What's that mean? Who gets hit worse? So on and so forth. So I think that underperformance we're seeing in defense is the market starting to recognize that we're going to start to see maybe a more tenuous situation in D.C. Right. So we'll so we'll see how that plays out. Let me uh, let me ask you uh, about that, right? I mean, we've been been on a little bit of a debt watch. Uh, the Washington uh, Roundtable uh, group on Friday was more concerned about this issue than they've been in a long time. That it that they are worried that it is uh, heading uh, to a default. It was Wall Street the last time that put the electricity into the political system. You know, after a downgrade. Uh, a first ever downgrade. I should point out France was just downgraded uh, as well. And I want to ask Sash about that in a moment. But how how are you sort of gaming this out, right? I mean, are you, are you putting odds on this? And if it happens, what are you telling investors about who gets hurt, how, and, and on what time scale? Because I think we all get hurt, right? This is kind of an end of the world scenario a little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, if there's a, a debt default, I mean, we, we really haven't talked about that, honestly, right? And that's, to be candid, that's my pay grade at the bank, because right. it will have, you know, ripple effects that are broader than just aerospace and defense, right? I mean, it's just kind of a, a, a broader situation. I would say, however, given where the market is, I mean, on the week, right, the S&P was up almost a percent, the market isn't factoring that in. I would say the market is is discounting in, yeah, at the last minute, something's going to happen, right? I mean, I think that's, you know, where the broader market psychology is. But I'd say those who look at defense, who tend to have a more acutely aware uh, view of what's going on in D.C. for obvious reasons, it's getting on their radar. Uh, very uh, interesting indeed. It started us off uh, on earnings uh, and how the group performed. Obviously, some of the biggest names uh, reported this week. We have Lockheed leading the way last week. What were some of the big takeaways from the big companies? Yeah, I would say, you know, on, on defense, uh, one of the themes we heard from everybody was still supply chain that you know there's issues in in terms of um you know in the in the shipyards and the electronic supply chain and uh with labor you know, the themes that we've heard before it's it's still an issue that you know things are still behind where i think everybody wants them to be um because of the supply chain i think that was one of the big themes that was across the sector another one was and and i think this you know in, impacted uh general dynamics and bombardier um, and then also Textron reported this week. I forgot to mention that before. Um, that you know the the investors are getting more concerned about you know, the business jet market, and if you will, the business jet cycle. Uh, that if we are moving into a, a more slowing economy, what impact that's going to have? Um, and, and honestly, I think it's probably a little too soon to tell on that. But given where you know those stocks moved this week after uh, reports, like so, for example, Textron reported broadly, you know, good quarter. You know, and, and the stock was down after they reported because I think fears on um, uh, what's going on in the business jet market. And what we did see was, you know, book to bills in the quarter were, were, were softer, order activity was softer, deliveries were softer. Uh, and then and another thing that kind of popped up out of the quarter, uh, and this, this was interesting, um, you know, general dynamics on their, on their quarter when they were speaking about um, what's going on at Gulfstream, Gulfstream, a couple of deliveries slipped. And they actually pointed their finger at Honeywell. And that generally doesn't happen. I mean, you, an OE 
generally doesn't, you know, just point out specifically uh, one supplier who's kind of fallen behind and, and not keeping up with where they think they should. Um, and that came up. So um, those those tensions, again, in the supply chain are still there, are still very, very real. They seem to be stabilizing, maybe getting better, but we're by no means out of the woods on that stuff. Sash, give us um, a sense on uh, European markets, obviously a downgrade for France, which is uh, sort of big news every time uh, one of the world's leading economies uh, has that happen and how they're impacting defense more broadly. And then I'm going to ask you to go into uh, how some of the European defense names, whether MTU, uh, Safran and others performed. Go ahead. Yeah, OK. Um, I mean, the France downgrade, uh, debt downgrade is very interesting. We're down to um, double A minus uh, by Fitch. Um, I mean, that's by no means... Uh, a, a catastrophe, and, the, and there are other G7 economies that have uh, had traded around that level, including the, the you know the UK at various stages. You know, tri- AAA ratings are getting rarer and rarer, even for major economies now, uh, although they're clearly highly desirable. Um, and governments always have the ability, or should this is so this is economic theory anyway, to tax their way out of any particular deficit problem. Um, I think what we're seeing with France, though, is a bit of a uh, a, a feeling that, first of all, France is relatively highly taxed. Secondly, um, if you know, there is so much political resistance to the pension reform uh, process that President Macron has been forcing through that there is just the concern that France might be uh, wearing much higher pension costs five, 10, 15 years out than, um, than has been uh, estimated. And then I think the, you know, the, the broader issue is how much can France afford to tax? How much does the country um, politically want to spend? And probably of all the, the major European countries, France is the, um, the country that sort of where there is the biggest change in sentiment over those two issues at the moment. And I think there is just this slight concern. And, you know, this is probably what, what Fitch is starting to allude to, that um, raising taxes is all very well. But actually the way that public opinion is developing in France is to force the government to spend more than it would necessarily like to. Here's the rub. Uh, It doesn't seem to be uh, getting public opinion in favour of spending on defence. And we've had a number of conversations with uh, investors over the last two, three weeks or so. If you talk to an investor in um, UK, Germany, US about defence, there's a fairly, you know, um, fairly strong consensus about the need for European countries to rearm, the need, you know, the degree to which that's going to feed through to higher defence spending, uh, the Zeitgenbender, the turning point in Germany, and so forth. Talk to an investor in France, you don't get that consensus at all. Actually, we've we've had some astonishing conversations where very, very, very sophisticated investors have just said defence spending won't go up because the public, by which they mean the the French public, which is uh, shorthand for uh, the unions won't allow it because this is you know this is not seen as being good spending and that's a remarkable um d- you know division of uh, bifurcation of public opinion in europe now france has got the advantage like arguably the uk or spain of being literally thousands of miles from the um uh, from the ukraine war so the ukraine war affects countries at the very western periphery of france much less than it does countries in Central and Eastern Europe. But I think these political, um, uh, the political turmoil we've been seeing in France is really having, starting to have a bit of an effect on uh, how people view defence spending. And more people are talking about the very ambitious 
plans that French have got for defence spending to go up as being frankly shaky. They may just just may not deliver on that. And, um, you know, you, we may see a much slower process of defence spending than President Macron currently wants. It, it's been a really interesting couple of weeks in that regard. And, you know, Fitch is sort of covering off most of those bases. I, I, I think that if you look at this from an American context, I think we're going to go into a very similar place. We heard from the chairman of the Airland uh, Subcommittee, uh, the House Airland Subcommittee, Rob Whitman, uh, widely respected bipartisan Republican from Virginia, uh, who said, look, we don't know how much more money we're going to be able to give, but it won't be as much money as we likely need to. And so we're going to have to make hard choices, especially because uh, of um, uh, the debt issue, uh, which is going to become uh, obviously a bigger political hot potato, especially as we go into uh, political season. Um, give us your sense on how the big names in Europe reported, uh, what, what they reported in the first quarter, whether MTU, Safran or others. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, if you look at share prices last week, um, the whole sector was off about a percent and a half, a bit more. There was really no big difference between civil names and the defence names. So, you know, un un slight, you know unlike um, uh, the US, if you look at the, <clears throat> the big performers, actually, the by far the strongest performer last week was Babcock, um, which had a sort of minor profit warning on the Type 20, uh, sorry, Type 31 frigate. I mean, they said it was going to cost more because of inflation. But um, the market actually took that pretty well because there was a sort of feeling of, well, thank heavens they finally sort of recognise that and the, that's out in the open. It means that's, a, that's not another sandbag that might fall. Fingers crossed on that one. But by contrast, uh, Hensolt was off 6%, really not on very much. Um, Leonardo was off 4%. I suspect Leonardo and Hensolt are going to trade much more in line now than they have done for some time. Saab was off uh, 4% on, uh, on earnings. The earnings were really good. Uh, the cash flow was fantastic, but the shares are up. Um, uh, you know, they, they peaked out at over uh, 600 crowns, um, having risen from 400, you know, 420 back in uh, uh, back at the end of January. And there's just, you know, we're starting to see quite significant profit taking. We, we downgraded our rating on, on Saab to hold because we thought it was sort of, you know, very much up with events. Safran are always interesting. I mean, that Safran and MTU, you know, are the two, continental European um, uh, engine makers. And Safran talks a lot uh, about the, um, uh, the state of affairs with the LEAP engine, the degree to which um, they have, you know, some consider, you know, continuing issues with LEAP in terms of uh, cost of overhauls and indeed reliability of parts in very forth. And, um, you know, they're really to be commended for, for how open they are about the problem that they've got. MTU, interestingly, um, and they pre-announced a couple of weeks ago um, that the shares haven't done a great deal since then. They're seeing very similar issues with the Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan. Uh, Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan has clearly got uh, issues of reliability at the moment. And if you are a, an engine company and you have sold engines with a flight hours agreement, um, an unreliable engine is the last thing you want because that all comes onto your, your checkbook. But I, you know, I think overall of the two stocks, MTU's numbers were definitely better, and uh, there's you know, MTU seem to be sitting on an upgrade later in the year. Fingers crossed. Um, there was quite a lot of questioning on the call about why on earth they didn't raise their numbers this time because you know the first quarter was so strong. There's not a great deal more that they have to do at this stage to to hit their full year guidance. Richard, um, I want to get your uh, sense on all of that, right? On on earnings, uh, on uh, the debt issue. Uh, and, and broader dynamics. Give us your sense. 
Yeah, you know, obviously the debt issue is, you know, completely political. It's tough to weigh in without getting political. It's very hard to see how things can be revised uh, or how it can be saved from a, you know, a, a nasty confrontation because God knows McCarthy and company are challenged from their right, people who will drop out of the agreement on the Republican side if it if it doesn't uh, go any, go if, if they back at all away from the, the deal they've offered. And uh, of course, from a democratic standpoint, a lot of these things are non-starters. So I understand completely the fear and I'm afraid too. <laughs> That's all it comes down to. And uh, you know, what it could mean, you already had a you know, tenuous interest rate situation. I imagine this would exacerbate things and have ripple effects throughout our industry uh, to say nothing of the broader economy, most obviously debt services and jetliner finance and whatever else, plenty of reasons to be afraid. Um, in terms of the uh, you know, company results, I, I was most intrigued by the business jet ones, uh, obviously General Dynamics Gulfstream and Bombardier. You know, you've got this sort of, I guess I almost want to call it stagflationary scenario that I think is in people's minds, not to read too much into what investors are thinking, but you have you know, slumping orders, obviously, book-to-bill ratios that have fallen below one for the first time in a few years. Um, still decent backlogs, but those could be vulnerable if there is a downturn. And a lot of people concerned, meanwhile, that on the production side, you know, supply chain issues, but especially on the engine front, a couple of G2ADs uh, not being delivered because of uh, Honeywell engines. This is concerning because, obviously, if you've got, you know, revenue that's not rising because of supply chain issues and orders that are falling, implying future issues, you know, that's a concern. I, I would point out to everyone that, you know, you had an awful lot of newcomers come into the business jet uh, user community during the pandemic, after the pandemic. We all knew that that would deflate, you know, basically they would take a cold, hard look at what it actually cost to fly private. And as airline service was restored, they would rethink it. You know, the numbers we always used were somewhere between 12 and 15 percent of new demand would stick around the stickiness factor. All right. Well, you're going to have some terrifying moments <laughs> when you deflate to that 12 or 15 percent from the 100 percent of newcomers sticking around because they want to. Um, so we're just going to see, you know, you were inevitably going to have some kind of fall in demand. Uh, but I'm not really, really super concerned right now because you know i mean it's not like book to bill has fallen to 0.4 it's only it's like 0.9 in the case of Gulfstream, not the end of the world and eventually like with everything else supply chain will be resolved the billing numbers were really interesting they actually did project a fair level of confidence on the max uh bracket issue that's good they maintained guidance that's probably good you know um that is to say it is good but we'll see whether it can be maintained um you know sounded pretty optimistic defense of course not really close to any kind of resolution but at least things weren't disastrous the way they have been in other quarters um and you know best of all there was the clear implication that uh, that china could you know join whenever it wanted and uh, that certainly seemed to be seems to be the case the chinese are coming back to the fold um will they actually order any new jets that's a, a big issue, but at least they're going to get to the point where probably sooner or later, they're going to start taking maxes. And that's certainly a welcome, that will be a welcome development. I, I want to uh, come back to that in a moment. But uh, uh, Ron, you've got your hand up. Go ahead. Yeah, I think one of the interesting points that General Dynamics made on their earnings call about the business jet market, kind of follow up on uh, something Richard said was, they did see a slowdown 
during the entire SVB saga. And that kind of after the clouds of that left, things started to accelerate again. I don't know if we'll see a similar reaction with what's going on uh, uh, currently. Um, so, so we'll see. Um, but they were the only manufacturer to, to really kind of admit that, yeah, that actually did have an impact on folks. That that uncertainty uh, might have slowed down a process that was still kind of chugging along, and it, and it started to accelerate again. I think what you'll end up seeing this year, at least this is how we're we're modeling it is this year we're back to a normal cadence that you'd see in a business jet year. Um, last year was was different. The year before that was different, meaning Q1 was really strong. That's typically not the case. Right. Usually how, how business jets go, Q1 is very weak and it kind of accelerates through the year. And Q4 is just you know a giant quarter for business jets. Deliveries, typically orders, that, that, that whole thing. Um, and I think what you're going to see this year is kind of a similar cadence that, you know, like Richard pointed out, we're sort of, you know, kind of, getting through that COVID bubble of demand to get you back to sort of normalcy. And what's normalcy? Well, you sort of accelerate as you go through the year and Q1 is typically your weakest quarter. And that's most certainly probably how it's going to play out this year. Ron, I I, I have a follow-up, right? I mean, we were talking about commercial uh, supply chains, obviously some very big orders uh, coming out of the Pentagon. You could look at the uh, F-35 order of about or contract for about $8 billion uh, as part of the course of a trillion dollar program. Uh, you know, obviously overseas orders in, in there as well as aircraft for uh, the U.S. military. And we should say Romania has selected the jet as well. So further expanding and, and turning the F-35 into, into the F-16, uh, uh, the, the latter day version of the F-16, uh, which which was obviously, you know, kind of a, a pillar uh, for European Air Forces during the Cold War and the decades since. There's also a $5 billion order to Lockheed Martin, uh, or almost $5 billion order for guided uh, multiple rocket launch system, GMLRS. Um, and one of the criticisms made, and I've made it, and other uh, uh, guests on the program uh, have said that the Pentagon's not moving fast enough. But the Pentagon maintains it's trying to move as fast as it can, given that it has all sorts of supply chain issues. It has an unavailability of chips, critical materials, uh, even even the equipment and the machining. There was a great article in the in the uh, Wall Street Journal, sort of detailing the kind of challenges that have had to be overcome to get to this point uh, to be able to deliver. What's your sense? Are we over the hump now, and are we doing all the things that we need to to be accelerating? Uh, deliveries and be able to do this so that just in case we need to produce a lot more stuff more quickly, we can do it. And Sash want to get, you know, just kind of take this as an opportunity to get an update uh, in uh, from a European perspective, given how hard actually European governments and companies uh, have been working to try to make that happen. And and both the United States and its allies and partners go overseas to get uh, its needs filled. Uh, and Korea is one of the nations that has a lot of capacity. Go ahead, uh, Ron. So you said, are we over the hump? No. Um, are we doing the right things to move things in the right direction? Yes. It's just going to take time. Um, you know, there was, as as you know, as we discussed before, there wasn't enough investment in the industrial base at the capacity levels that we're seeing across multiple platforms to support that. Um, some of those investments are being made. It's investments in, uh, you know, both bricks and mortar machinery personnel kind of across the board. Um, is is that flywheel moving? Yes. Uh, will we get there? Yes. Are we there yet? No. Are things accelerating? Yes. So I think I think that's just that's the reality uh, of the situation. It's very encouraging um, from a uh, how can I say it from a production point of view to see the orders flowing through. 
but there's there's still there's still challenges ahead. And I think that was a very very clear message from the companies this quarter. Uh, I think it's interesting on you know the Northrop quarter, uh, Kathy Warden said, hey, you know what? Um, we've made investments in capacity for uh, propulsion systems for for missiles. I think they said, if I remember right, about a billion dollars of investments on on their side. Uh, and they're, they're looking for DOD to make some more investments, which will probably happen. Um, but it just all takes time, Baga, right? So, you know, are, are, are we there? I mean, this the recognition of all this really started to happen, what, six months uh, into the war with uh, Ukraine, um, uh, the Ukraine-Russian war. So, you know, it's it really, ultimately, it really hasn't been that long. And as you well know, you just can't snap your fingers and turn on all this capacity. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, I, I think a, a broader thing to think about uh, that the industry is going to have to think about, the Pentagon is going to think about, once the investments are made and the flywheel's turning, uh, after presumably, you know, after the the, the situation in the Ukraine sets, sorts itself out, um, do you keep that flywheel turning, or how do you do that? How do you keep everything so that if you do need to ramp up on, you know, a snap of a finger, you can do that? And I think I, I would argue, and I don't. I think you probably agree with me not to put words in your mouth. We didn't do a good job of doing that when we scaled back. Uh, right. And, you know, so how do we do that going forward? Uh, I think that's probably a, a bigger, more difficult, important question to ask. Uh, and and what are uh, some of the things that the government should be doing that they're not doing at this point, uh, given you spend a lot of time talking to folks in government about this and, in fact, are asked by people in government about how to do this better? I don't think there's this broad recognition about the workforce challenges. Um, you know, when you look at a great example is the shipyards, right? You just don't have enough trained people at the level, as an example, to build Virginia class submarines. You just don't at the moment. Uh, and how do you bring in more people? How do you train them up? How do you keep them? How do you retain them? Uh, and, and the challenge for the shipyards is a really formidable one. If you think about what's in front of them for Virginia class and then ultimately Virginia plus Columbia. And then you have Virginia plus Columbia plus whatever we do in AUKUS. That's, that's a gigantic challenge for them. And, and not that long ago, I mean, the shipyards were, I don't want to, this is over description saying that they were in decline, but they kind of were, right? I mean, there just wasn't a lot of investment in the shipyards for a long time. And in, in a way we're paying that price now where, it's like at a snap of a finger, well, we'd like to have three Virginia class manufactured this year. Well, it just doesn't work that way. Um, so it's, and, and and I think one of the biggest things, and we, we, and if we're all honest with each other, we should have seen this coming. There's a whole cohort of very experienced labor, both engineering and fabricators who were in their late fifties, early sixties, who are no longer there. Um, and, you know, how do you fill in that gap? And that's that's just going to take time. And it's something you really have to focus on. Uh, indeed, it is. I mean, at the at the end of the day, it all all comes down to people. If you have good people, uh, the, the problem is uh, a, a lot more easily solved than than if you just don't have enough people. I'm not saying there are bad people. You just don't have enough of the right kinds of people with the right kinds of skills uh, to try to make it happen. And then we, we also have a tendency of short sheeting investment on the things that we need, right? It's it's always robbing Peter to pay Paul. Uh, Sash, kind of give us a quick uh, European update uh, on on where we stand and, and how governments are handling some of these very same uh, questions because one advantage is there's probably actually even more capacity and more places in Europe than there is in the United States where we went on a, on a massive uh, efficiency drive, right? And one of the concerns is that Europe is inefficient in part because people maintain so much national capacity. 
where where is that an advantage? Where is that a liability from your perspective? Okay, yeah, I mean, to start with, we're nowhere near over the hump. I would say we're at least two years uh, before we get over the hump. Um, and part of the problem, and I'll address this from a U.S. standpoint, because I think the U.S. has got the biggest challenge, is that actually you are looking at two totally different um, uh, production ramp problems. One is a problem of producing capital equipment, big, heavy stuff, predominantly for use in a war against China. And the other is producing munitions for consumption now in a war between Ukraine and Russia and to rearm your allies in Europe. And those have very, very different tempos, but they're both going to take several years to, to build up capacity. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, you know, Europe does in, in munitions. And you know, Europe, Europe doesn't have the same focus on China that, that, um, that the US has. For, for, for better or for worse. But you know, if you look at the number of producers of, of stuff, um, you know, key things, the US at the very best has got about five big producers plants for uh, artillery ammunition. Um, Europe has got, uh, we can count eight and the European Union says there are 11. So there is more capacity out there, but some of this capacity has not been used except at a very, very low level for, for many years. So, you know, that's going to take time to, uh, to ramp up. We, I mean, we've, we've done some work on this and I mean, we reckon current European capacity for 155 millimeter artillery ammunition is somewhere in the region of 350,000 rounds per annum. That's not what's being produced. That's what current capacity is, but that's got the ability to nearly triple. Um, but I don't think until, uh, you know, post 2025, if you look at the U S I mean, the U S is producing, um, uh, about four between um, sorry, uh, it's producing a, about uh, three hundred thousand rounds of ammunition a year, or is going to do that by twenty twenty four. Gets up to probably about five hundred thousand rounds a year. So I mean, Europe has got much greater capacity, but it's going to take longer to uh, it's going to take longer to ramp up overall. I thought that the GMLRS order for Lockheed Martin this week was really really interesting. Um, why? Because it's it's of the scale that has to be made if um, that whole production system is going to uh, ramp up in a reasonable period of time. I mean, put it in perspective, 4.8 billion uh, order doesn't buy you a great deal. It buys you somewhere between 35 and 40,000 uh, rockets, let's say 6,000 pods, uh, a, um, a high Mars probably fires between six and 10 pods a day in intensive operations. That's what the Ukrainians would fire if they had enough ammunition. So, you know, it's a start, but it, you know, it's not enough to actually restock US and European arsenals and supply Ukraine at the same time. We did some work on this, uh, looking at what likely demand is. And I have to say this, every time we do this, it gets bigger because we always assume that or we, we always have to add more Ukrainian consumption to it. But we looked at the total market for uh, GMLRS rockets, and we reckoned that between now and 2025, it, it runs to about over $50 billion, euros, your currency, your choice. But you know, that's the scale of how much needs to be spent. And you know, $5 billion, it's a start, really, really good start, but that will um, barely sort of stop the bleeding in terms of how much is being shipped out from uh, the US to, to Ukraine over, over the next couple of years, and Europe needs to do the same. On which subject, what was fascinating is that Rheinmetall announced a collaboration with Lockheed Martin this week on exactly these rockets. I mean, the, the press release says it will be to establish a 
um, a, a, a brand new German solution um, rocket system. Uh, the Germans have always called it their MLRS by a, a slightly different name anyway. But what this is doing is establishing a European production line for the GMLRS rockets, which hasn't existed. There's never been one for GMLRS, but Europe hasn't produced MLRS rockets for 25 years. It used to be done by Deal um, when the whole MLRS program started. This is exactly the sort of uh, capacity production required, but I doubt that that will produce a rocket before the end of 2024, more likely 2025. That's how long this flywheel takes to get moving. Uh, and does Ukraine then have what it needs when it needs it, when it's starting gearing up to mount its offensive now? Brutally, no. It's going to be short. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, no, there's almost no general who ever says, I have enough, whether it's small arms ammunition or tanks or rockets or, or artillery. Because um, if you know the military, you're always going to want more, just, just to be sure. But no, I think it's almost certainly going to be the case that you know Ukraine will it will have an insufficient number of modern armoured vehicles and it will have insufficient amounts of uh, indirect fire munitions. And it's clearly got a problem with surface-to-air missiles. It's just running out of them and European nations and the US are running out of spare ones to give them. Um, you know, we don't have enough. We, we can't give them uh, what we don't have. Richard, uh, let me bring you into this and then I've got a follow-up question. Uh, two uh, quick follows uh, for you, uh, Sash, from a European perspective with everybody's forbearance because there's a little bit of news going on over there uh, as well I want to try to get to. Go, go ahead, Richard. From my standpoint, you know, it's nothing we haven't said for some time now. It's all about the cash. You know, you've just got to provide the industrial base and, of course, the supply chain with the reassurance that this will be a long-term thing. So multi-year procurement contracts, as Catholics at the Pentagon call them, bulk contracts for missiles and munitions. This is being done. We know what to do. Now, now for the hard part, <laughs> how do we avoid in the future getting ourselves into this situation? You know, I mean, basically the whole system is geared towards prioritizing cash for building, you know, shiny new things, uh, developing new weapon systems. And of course, from a politician standpoint, from the, you know, kind of capital intensive um uh, you know, jobs, pro, jobs uh, generating projects, which means, you know, procuring shiny new equipment. Very few people in the system are incentivized to maintain idle industrial base capacity that's capable of producing surge volumes. We have, we didn't do that. We obviously didn't do that in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, we haven't done it for quite some time. So I think the number one lesson is not in the short term. You know, the short term is, Throw money at it, place bulk orders, multi-year procurement contracts, reassure the industrial base that for the next eight to 10 years, we're going to be spending on them. So please facilitize. We know that exam answer, right? It's what do we do after that to somehow gear the system to preserve idle capacity, whether that takes place at the congressional level or the Pentagon level. It's not likely to happen at the private sector level. Obviously, they're you know, they have to be responsive to investors and they'll never say, okay, yeah, we're just keeping this capacity in the event of a war. It, it's a money loser, but we're going to keep it in place. You know, re return on net assets doesn't matter anymore. Return on invested capital doesn't matter anymore. We just feel like being good citizens that said nobody ever. So it comes down to either Congress or the Pentagon or MODs or, you know, parliaments to say, all right, in the future, we've got to spend on idle capacity that won't be used except in the event of a high-intensity conflict. 
we buy the equipment as leader after leader said, you know, we try to make up numbers by reducing munition stocks. In the case of the United States, it, it's not considered uh, overhead, right? We have vast stockpiles, whereas uh, as, as Sasha so wisely said for so long, European governments actually penalize excess inventory. And so people have just, <laughs> just enough stuff uh, you know, God forbid something happens. And even then it's not enough as we saw in Libya and a number uh, of other uh, instances. Um, Sash, uh, we're, we're sort of running short on time and I want to get your sense uh, on uh, the farmer uh, issue. We didn't discuss this, unfortunately, uh, on the Friday show in part because all of this stuff was sort of moving in, in real time. The EU uh, appears to have sided with Ukraine or, or at least struck a deal to allow uh, five uh, countries in the east of the country to continue importing Ukrainian grain. They were saying Poland, Bul uh, uh, Bulgaria, Hungary, uh, and I want to say Romania and Slovakia uh, were the ones with the concerns that this Ukrainian grain that's coming into Europe in order to be transshipped elsewhere is hurting our farmers. Uh, hurting farmers is a third rail in European politics, but the EU said, look, it's very important for us to keep doing this. We have to continue supporting Ukraine. Uh, and yet there are times on, like this where you sense this might be the first crack. We've survived other uh, cracks, but maybe not one quite as severe as this among countries that are actually doing double duty uh, supporting Ukraine. What did this entire episode mean from your perspective about the long-term support for uh, Ukraine? You summed it up really well. I, I, here's the problem. Political support, or sorry, support across the political spectrum is always conditional. And as soon as you get local issues uh, involved, then, uh, you, know, uh, the, you know, whatever the view is about what is best for the European uh, politic in its very broadest sense and standing by Ukraine, that goes up in a ball of smoke because um, farmers, farmers need their income and uh, farmers are incredibly politically important in Europe. Um, the European Union was set up, among other things, uh, to support farmers. And that's what it does incredibly well. Luckily, this time, that's what it did. I, the European Union is paying out 100 million euros to um, farmers in those uh, six uh, countries uh, you know, to buy them off. But, you know, this is a, you know, more broadly, what we're seeing here is the uh, effectiveness of the Russian um, grain embargo. In, um, in the Black Sea, although there, you know, there's all sorts of negotiations and ships full of grain from Ukraine do go through the Black Sea and then through the, straight, the uh, uh, Bosphorus um, for export into the you know, Mediterranean beyond, it's harder to do, the flow is nowhere near as big and therefore the Ukrainians are shipping stuff out by truck, by rail through Eastern Europe. And once they do that, then the grain inevitably becomes just part of the, you know, the, the various European grain mountains, rather than going to the countries it used to go to. I think people probably aren't necessarily aware enough that Ukraine used to be a massive supplier to North Africa of grain, a massive supplier to East Africa of grain, and to some extent to, to other parts of the Middle East. Much harder to get it there now. And um, hence it's, it's European farmers that are being clobbered by the fact that this grain is moving west rather than moving south and east and some of it inevitably depresses prices in their countries so this is going to be one of the ways i think it's going to be one of the ways actually that the eu can demonstrate that it works in terms of the ukraine conflict is by uh continuing to subsidize european farmers to you know to accept the facts that 
Ukrainian grain is going to be part of the part of the supply uh, process you know, for the next several years. Um, I, you know, even European farmers can't wish it away. Um, just very quickly, if we can uh, go around the, the horn, uh, because we've got about uh, two minutes uh, left. Are European governments going to have the ability to spend as much on money, as much money on defense as they need to when France is racked by a debt issue, the United States is racked by a debt issue. In the UK, uh, there is a, a tense political environment, uh, a lot of frustrations about the National Health Service, et cetera, about the kind of investment that's going to be needed. I was talking to a good British friend of mine um, who is as patriotic as anybody and expressing a little bit of concern on that. So when faced with health care uh, and social benefits or spending more on military capability, we know the one that ends up winning. Um, and it's about to become a very political, even bigger political hot potato in the United States. Just really quick, what's what's the sentiment? Do we all, Germany has challenges, every, every nation has challenges, uh, unless those that feel it most existentially where they're willing to make those trade-offs. And even in Finland, there's a question about whether or not they're going to be able to spend as much money as, as they might need to uh, on uh, defense among some. What's a quick sense, quickly around the horn, and then I want to end, end with the coronation sash. Uh, yeah, Ron, why don't you start us off, Richard, and then and then Sash can double team the last answer. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, Bago. Um, and you know, this may might be the wrong way to look at it. I'm not sure, but um, uh, CEO of one of the big defense companies uh, years back said to me, you know, when push comes to shove and and you, you need you need defense, countries will be willing to burn their furniture for a good defense. Um, I don't know. We'll see if that's how it plays out in Europe or not. Um, I'd be real interested to hear what uh, Sash and uh, Richard have to say. Richard, are people getting the hatchets out to break up the furniture to burn it? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, frankly, the real problem is that you've got a level of power for extremists, particularly on the right, but certainly on the left, too, who, uh, you know, for them, uh, damage to the defense budget is a, a feature, not a bug <laughs> of this uh, this dead impasse. They're just fine with that. Maybe some of them, you know, just have no problem at all with Vladimir Putin. There's certainly that aspect of it. So I, I think this time we should be very worried. The good old days of the Republican Party being reliable stewards of national security seem to be a bit damaged by this. And again, there is that part on the left too that's just fine with damage to defense spending. So in, in the past, yeah, historically, you look at patterns of defense spending and they've been completely removed from uh, anything economic, any kind of indicators. But this time uh, might just be different. Sash? Defense is a distress purchase. Nobody likes doing it. It's like insurance. Nobody likes paying for insurance, but you do it because you have to. Um, I, we still believe that to be the case. Um, the, the great problem with Europe is that Europe is not a monolith, despite the fact that it's got this name Europe. And therefore, there's this tendency to think that every country in Europe is going to more or less do the same thing and preferably the right thing. Um, it isn't. They won't. Um, and they certainly aren't at the moment. Uh, and I said earlier, and I come back to it, the further you are away from Ukraine, the less sense of urgency there is. That's why France has got problems. That's why the UK has has got problems. And that's why nobody even mentions Spanish defense spending, despite the fact that it's a nation of 40 odd million people, because they're so far removed from things they just don't need to spend and aren't. Um, and you know, not a lot more in Italy either. The closer you are, Northern, uh, Northern and Eastern Europe, the more they do spend. It's very noticeable 
that once defence spending cycles start to turn up in Europe, countries can place individual orders that are multiples of their annual defence budget. Look at any of the F-35 orders that we've seen in the last three to four years, or indeed the orders for Patriot uh, missiles. These are, you know, um, uh, in particular, Romania, Sweden, Finland for F um, F-35s, Switzerland for both. The orders are, are order, you know, several times the annual defence budget, because that's what European nations do when they start to rearm. The problem is that they, it inevitably means that there's other stuff, particularly munitions, they aren't spending enough on. And that's going to be the, 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 the pain, the pinch point that we see over the next couple of years. Um, but, uh, you know, we would expect there to be a continual divergence between countries in the East and North and countries in the West and South in terms of the sense of urgency and hence how defence spending goes. Will it be enough? Probably not, frankly. But the degree to which European arsenals have been run down, drained by Ukraine makes some of this spending much, much more important. And actually, you know, there may well be stuff that can be uh, dialed back, whether it's combat aircraft or you know, helicopters or whatever, to pay for the um, the restocking that really is required. Speaking about uh, European military forces, uh, Britain is uh, the, uh, one of the continent's most storied uh, military powers uh, and also has uh, one of uh, the world's, if not the world's uh, monarchy. Um, King Charles III is about to be uh, coronated. There are uh, thousands of troops across the United Kingdom that will be uh, supporting this 1,200 at least. Uh, have been practicing on uh, uh, London uh, streets before uh, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, you had said how often and at what times of odd day uh, everybody was uh, practicing in order to make sure that the funeral went off without a hitch. What are all the things that are happening now to make sure that the coronation itself goes off without a hitch? Look, the paradox is that actually I think the coronation is going to be, um, it's very difficult to say, lower key than Queen Elizabeth's funeral, but Queen Elizabeth's funeral was the end of an era and was, you know, unparalleled in its importance of, you know, Britain's post-war history. Um, the king has been very clear that he wants a coronation that is um, a lower uh, scale than um, his mother had back in 1953. Um, Twelve hundred servicemen. You know, it doesn't line doesn't line a great deal of London streets. Let's be let's be absolutely clear about that. So it, it is it is low. Um, that will be a much smaller commitment than than we saw for the Queen's um, coronation. Uh, and you know, it's worth pointing out that while all these rehearsals have been going on, um, we've also been doing a, an evacuation of British citizens and dependents from Sudan, which uh, had almost exactly the same commitment about sixteen hundred. Uh, military personnel, predominantly from the uh, air force and the army, um, who, who've been carrying that out. So uh, it has, you know, the, the rehearsals, the practicing has not been to the entirely to the detriment of, um, you know, British military commit commitments e elsewhere. Um, but I think it will be rather good, frankly, once the coronation is over and the servicemen can get back to um, full time training again. As an aside, it's worth being aware that. The British Army's single biggest commitment at the moment is training Ukrainians. Uh, and uh, it's almost impossible to get a booking, you know, to book time and space on a training range in the UK because Ukrainians have the highest priority and are using them very, very intensively indeed. I think that's fantastic. I'm, you know, utterly proud of that. I think it's the right thing to do. But it's, it gives you an idea of quite how much the UK has made that the main effort. And um, 
a British Army training will have suffered and is suffering as a consequence of that. The coronation, thankfully, will be over and done by um, Saturday evening. We hope that it goes off without a hitch. We look forward to a full uh, review from you, uh, Sash, on what the key and salient uh, uh, points of this ancient ceremony uh, will be. Uh, and we w- wish everybody luck as they go through it, because I know uh, uh, friends of mine and, and friends of yours, uh, Sash, are actively engaged in trying to make it a success. But uh, Before we go, China airline order. Quickly, uh, give us your take. I should have asked you that. Uh, and we uh, talked a little bit about the budget issue. Really quick. Um, whether or not there is anything to the supposed new order, given that the Airbus order, there was nothing new about that when we discussed it uh, a little while ago. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, what is sort of interesting is that- And and tell the audience what happened uh, and why we think it may not be as big of a deal as some might make it. Yeah, HNA Group, um, one of the bigger airline groups, of course, in China placed a uh, large order for C919s and ARJ21s, basically over 100, I believe, combined. And this is kind of interesting. I mean, the C919 is, they've delivered a plane. It occasionally flies, you know. I mean, the idea of being super enthusiastic and planning your future fleet requirements around it is not realistic for anybody. It basically shows, however, that the government is putting the clamps on everybody in the airline sector to show support for these programs and basically make commitments that will give them uh, a little bit more realness than they might otherwise have. And that, of course, comes down to the whole issue of what China is trying to achieve at the government level, autarky and freedom from Western technologies. I, I don't really think that anyone has had the conversation with President Xi that all of these orders and all of these planes are heavily dependent upon Western technology and systems imports. But nevertheless, it shows a commitment to bolster independent production of jetliners in country. And we can talk uh, more about that next week. Everybody, thanks very, very much. Uh, Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great day, great week, and look forward to having you back on uh, again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. Always great to be on. Thanks, Vago. Thank you very much for joining us and a very special thanks to Bell for their generous support that makes this program possible. We'll see you again tomorrow for our look ahead at the week. Thanks very much and hope you guys have a great day. Take care.